Welcome to Kesed. If you're new, my name is Danny and I am one of the pastors here and I'm so glad you're here. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room and to the men who play that role in somebody's life. We are so very grateful, as Joe said, uh, to be part of a tribe that, that cares for one another. Uh, I recognize that uh, Father's Day is kind of a mixed bag when it comes to preaching and so uh, I have something special planned for you guys today. But before I talk about it, because I know there's a lot of new guests on a holiday like this, I want to explain what this giant statement, the blacksmith's dog, is about. Because you probably should have played, what's the name of this church? I don't understand. Uh, it's based on the quote you saw in our, in our opening video by Charles Spurgeon. And the story is that he was traveling through uh, his city and he was trying to figure out how to explain to his church that that uh, oftentimes in the midst of God doing amazing things and doing miraculous things within uh, one's life and one's community, we can become apathetic to that. A lot like what God is, the amazing things God is doing at Kesson. And so he said he was traveling by and he saw a dog sleeping in a blacksmith shop, a shop that grown men would have to uh, wear ear protection around, but this dog was just slumbering beneath the embers and the fire and the sounds and the creation of all that was happening because it had been put there by the blacksmith and raised there. And he started kind of relaying and building this message around this idea that we as a church often are like dogs sleeping in a blacksmith shop, that God is creating and moving and building and accomplishing all these things. But because we're within the creation, we can become apathetic and maybe even slumbery, if that's a word, to all of the things that he wants to do within our lives. So that's what the series is about. It's only a four-week series because who wants to talk about apathy for longer than that? Um, I don't. So uh, it wraps up next week, and it wraps up next week with an opportunity, a very purposeful, a very prayed-over opportunity. Uh, next week when you come to church, Thursday and Sunday, there's going to be a pool right here in the middle of the church. Now, some of you already know, because the Holy Spirit's been prompting you, that you're supposed to get baptized. You understand that the water's not magical, that, it's, that there's nothing miraculous about it, but that the Bible and Christ call us to make this public statement of our faith. These sacraments, both of communion and baptism, are symbols to the rest of the world that, that we belong to somebody other than ourselves. And so some of you are going to sign up. And, and if you want to do that, you still have plenty of time to do it. You can do it on the app. You can do it out front. But some of you, some of you are punks is what's going to happen. And you're going to roll in next week knowing you're supposed to be baptized, but you're purposely not going to bring clothes because you can't get baptized in your normal clothes. But except here at Kesson, you most certainly can because we have towels for you. And if you show up next week and you feel like God is calling you to get into that water to make that statement, then I'm gonna meet you right in that water in my church clothes and we're just gonna do what we need to do to make sure that, uh, that, that you meet the Lord where you're supposed to. So my encouragement to you would be that you sign up, that you don't just show up and wait for the Holy Spirit to grab you by the throat and drag you in. But... But if that's what needs to happen, then I'll be here to help that along. So um, I'm excited about it, but I wanted to give you at least that heads up. I also hope you that have been baptized and you're, you're uh, kind of uh, moving through that process in your faith already, that you're here to encourage, that you're here to celebrate. Uh, I think it'll be really, really exciting. Now, that said, uh, Father's Day. Uh, this is, I think, my, this is maybe my third or fourth uh, Father's Day without my father here. Um, so some of us in the room, you understand what I'm going through and kind of what that feels like. Others of us in the room, maybe you're, you're missing a child this Father's Day. Maybe you are not in relationship with a child. Maybe you never had children, so this is kind of an interesting thing for you. Um, maybe you're a mother in the room or a single person in the room, and so this day has different feelings because of the relationship that you have or don't have with your father. It's a very unique kind of thing to do uh, on a crowd level in an intimate way, and it takes, uh, it takes somebody special to do it. And so uh, I prayed a few months ago about what we were going to experience on our Father's Day, and uh, a certain person came to mind that I want to bring some quick clarity around. Uh, about six months ago, people started asking me if I had met Kip, like at multiple services, during multiple things, like, hey, real quick, can I just talk to you for a second? They were talking to me like they were experts, and they were like, I don't know if you know this, there's a guy in our church called Kip. Have you met Kip? And I was like, yeah, I've met Kip. I pastor the church. I know what people go here. And they were like, mm, mm, but have you met Kip? And I was 
I, I think I have. And then the next person, and then the next person, and then the next person. So let me just settle it up. Uh, you don't get Kip credit for, for discovering Kip. Uh, we all got to meet Kip together. And those who don't know, Kip is a retired clinical psychologist who was a pastor on staff at Saddleback Church uh, with Rick Warren, who started coming to our church uh, just quietly in the back and, and introducing himself just simply as Kip, not Dr. Kip, not psychologist Kip, not retired pastor Kip, not wiser than most people Kip, not Kip with the good hair, which is how I would have introduced myself if I was him. That's just me though. <laughs> but just Kip. And so when it came to Father's Day and the uniqueness of the preach, I sat with him and I said, what do you think about tackling this? And he goes, well, I'm not, I'm not like a preacher. That's not what I do. And I go, I know, but you're, but you're Kip. I don't know if you've met you or not, but you're pretty awesome. And we'd like to hear what you have to say about uh, God, the father, the fathers, all of us deal with, and even your journey as a father. So he prayed about it and he said that he would be willing to share. So I'm very, very excited to, uh, to ask you to give a warm Kessid welcome to Dr. Kip Gallion. I didn't come up from over there for a grand entrance. I came up because I don't trust my trick knee on those stairs right there. And I didn't want to show up on America's Funniest Videos either because that could happen. As Danny said, I was a behind-the-scenes pastor at Saddleback. I was a care pastor in hospital at 2 a.m., doing funerals, counseling, behind the scenes. Never, ever, ever on a weekend. I'll be in this chair, this podium, these notes, and this precious little water bottle I've got right here. Isn't that just like, it's like preschool water bottle. But, the reason I've got it is because if I have a tall water bottle, I'll certainly kick this somewhere and it's going to go over. So I've got to have a little one that sits low right there. The other thing is, I chew gum all the time just to keep my mouth moist. Normally, I can't do that up here. Well, I could, but So this will be in my hand pretty much all the time. Thursday night, I found out Mel was nice enough, so kind, to print notes out on that, like, almost like cardstock, really thick. And I was sitting here trying to get traction, just, just, just to pull the paper over. So I thought, let me keep the water handy. When Danny asked me to do the message, as soon as I hung up the phone, after saying yes, a voice goes, are you crazy? <laughs> You're no preacher. And that's true. I'm not. But then a different voice, the right voice, talked to me and said, well, you and I have a story together. You're a dad. And don't think of it as preaching. Just think of it as sharing our story together. And it is our story. The part about me is not very pretty. The part about God and his amazing grace, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. <sighs> awesome. It's Father's Day, too. Come October, I will have been a father for 41 years. But I've only been a dad for the last five. And by this time, Monday, I'm guessing. And Father's Days, all the celebrations and the lunches and the barbecues and everything come to get, you know, they're come and gone. You're all going to, a lot of you dads will have gifts. They'll come from Amazon, come from the mall. Some of them will come from the kitchen table. Beautiful crayon and glitter and sticker gifts from your kids or your grandkids. I remember one of the gifts I made my dad that, was a lump of clay, it was painted, and he kept spinning it around in his hand trying to figure out what it was. And, and I said, it's a pen holder for your desk, Dad. And he's looking at it because this lump of clay had no hole in it. <laughs> it was just a lump of clay. But he was gracious and he was kind and he could see that 
I was beaming, and he said something to the effect of, I love it. It's exactly what I wanted. Like it was the best present he could ever get. In this series, Blacksmith Dog, Danny opened it up by talking about apathy, and Lindsay continued last week. Um, and it is the meaning that we know today, that lack of concern, that in, lack of enthusiasm, that no interest in things. This is like just a big shoulder shrug. You know, eh, I don't care. Take it or leave it. But it has a deeper meaning centuries ago in the Greek. Much more power to it. It literally meant to be without suffering. It's a combination of two parts, the letter A, meaning without, and pathos, meaning suffering. And the first and primary meaning long ago was the absence or the suppression, the pushing down of emotion or passion, followed by a lack of interest or enthusiasm. So there can be a deliberateness, an intentionality, a, a purposeful choosing not to feel. And that's where my story and apathy start to merge together. Because in seventh grade, I began the process of choosing not to feel. Because I was safer that way. Because the home I was growing up in was, in effect, the blacksmith shop. It had all the heat and the fire and the pounding and the noise and the grittiness of one. When I was 11 years old, the term for what my mom went through was called manic depression. Today it's called bipolar. My mom had a really extreme case. She would go three to four weeks incredibly high, incredibly manic, like vacuuming the house at 3 a.m. or redoing the cupboards in the kitchen, relining them, you know, twice in a week. That type of manic, that type of intensity. She also refused medication, the medication that could have truly helped her, and she chose alcohol instead. My father dealt with it the only way he knew how, which was to not deal with it, and he w became a workaholic, six days, 12 to 13 hours a day, out of the house. But when he got home, almost always, there was a lot of fighting. And I don't need to go into any more detail about my normal because a lot of you have experienced that in your life. When I was 11, though, I learned this. When my mom was in between her episodes, when she was coming down from the manic or coming up from the depression, in those periods when she was kind of calm, the house would be picked up, dinner would be started, she had a nicer tone, there would be less alcohol drunk, and things were calm and peaceful. So, I learned my role. I decided upon what I was going to be doing. I was going to learn how to cook. I knew how to clean. Wasn't hard to pick up the trash and make sure beer bottles were in the outside trash can where my dad couldn't see them. Um, and I learned how to cook courtesy of the Boy Scouts and my seventh grade girlfriend's mom and shake and bake. Because <laughs> I learned you can shake and bake just about anything chicken or pork chops, there's also hamburger helper. And that, you know, I could fry a hamburger patty, I could slice a tomato, I could open a can of green beans, I could get the basics on the table. And once I did that, I didn't have to fear being hit, I didn't have to have the anxiety of watching my dad get beat up. I was able to, in my mind, calm the house down. And in my mind, control my parents' relationship and bring order to the house and stop the fighting. I was that well-behaved kid 
that caused no problems. In fact, I was doing extra, cooking, cleaning, and taking care of my sister. I had kind of a, a twisted view of reality, but it was based on the facts as I knew them. It wasn't logical at all, but it was really useful. Nothing changed a whole lot when my, in my family dynamic as I got older. Mid-teens, 14, 15, 16, everything continued just the same. My Father's Day gifts changed, though, because my dad loved tools. He wasn't home to use them, but he loved them. And what he loved the most was to go out in the garage and look at his tools on the pegboard. Because <laughs> he had them all arranged with the little hooks and, and, the, and the wrenches were all in descending order and, and they just looked gorgeous up there. Beautiful. So I got him tools. Something I thought he would like to have. And every year his response was something to the same effect of, I love it. I've already got a project in mind that I can use this on. Thank you so much. And for a few moments, I felt like I'd brought him a little bit of happiness. At 17, my life changed forever because I met a really incredible person, and that was Jesus. And he changed my life radically. I was the wave of what was called the Jesus people out of Calvary Chapel. We had big wooden crosses and even bigger Bibles under our arms, and we would hit the streets on the weekends, and we would witness and hand out tracts. And I had a passionate love for God. And you'd think, that life-changing passion, that the perfectionism that was developing, that controlling nature that I had, would be done away with. But I wasn't ready to give it up and Jesus wasn't going to force it from me. At 20, I married a beautiful Christian woman that I adored. Her family were all believers. They were funny. The house was happy. People got along. And there was nobody like me making it happen. It was effortless. And I was so happy to be included in a family like this. And you would think I could let go of my controlling ways, right? My perfectionism, my not wanting to fail. Hmm. -mm. Because I just redefined them. That's what a solid Christian husband does. That's what the spiritual leader of my marriage does. He controls assertively. He makes strong decisions and he leads his family. The only problem was, when I turned around, nobody was really following me, so I wasn't really much of a leader. I was constantly stressed out, worrying that I had let something either poorly done or undone altogether for which I was going to be criticized. I was my harshest critic of my performance, and I set incredibly high standards and expectations for myself, and usually for other people too. I was so afraid of failing in anything that if there's any possibility of not meeting my goals or to meet someone else's expectations, I would abandon a project altogether or I would make someone else responsible for it so when it went south, they were to blame. My son and I, or my wife and I would go on to have a son and eight years later, a daughter. Both of them were and are, of course, the greatest blessings in my life. And every year, from the time they could be a part of it, my wife was really attentive, very loving, to make sure there was a Father's Day gift from them. And remembering back to what my dad did and said, I tried to do the same thing. I love it. It didn't matter what the gift was, how homemade it was, how Many times I had to turn it and try to figure out what it was. I love it. It's exactly what I was wanting. I can really use this. And I would see in them 
the same happiness that I had giving my dad a gift. When my kids got older, my wife and I would both go on to serve in full-time ministry. She was a full-time graphic artist, amazing on the computer, worked in the publication department at Saddleback. I was a pastor of pastoral care. And in those times, those years of service, I can look back at these benchmarks where the Holy Spirit was constantly tugging at me to deal with my controlling ways, to deal with the perfectionism, to deal with not being able to say I was wrong, to, to not say and admit that I had fallen short somewhere. By now, perfectionism was a really trustworthy and reliable friend I could count on. He would get me through the emotional chaos I was feeling at home, or he would give me a really great door to run through and escape. My wife and I would ultimately divorce. Issues on both sides, we were both consumed so much in ourselves and our issues that we were totally horizontally focused rather than vertically directed. And neither of us went to God in prayer. One of the issues my wife had with me is she wanted somebody authentic. She wanted somebody transparent. She wanted somebody who would be able to admit his faults, take them to God, and ask for some healing. I wanted the security of a method that kept everything under control that would be considered a success. As my son and daughter grew older, parents, you know, these teenagers of ours, they are insightful. They know more about us sometimes than we really want them to know. And they know more about us than we really think they could understand. My kids were that way. Father's Day was never missed, but there was a greater emotional distance developing between us. The gifts became more sporadic. The cards came, but a lot of times it was just a signature of their name, and the sentiment all came from Hallmark. I wasn't really a dad. I wasn't there for the heartfelt conversations. I wasn't there as the listener who just listened and didn't try to fix. I wasn't there to be asked for advice if they asked. And as I look back, I find it so ironic. I was a pastor and then a psychologist. And we're supposed to have all the answers, right? We're supposed to have all the parenting and the relationship and all that stuff all dialed in, right? After all, we counsel people. Why can't we heal ourselves? I couldn't. In his book, Abba's Child, Brennan Manning writes this. He says, the sorrow of God lies in our fear of him, our fear of life and our fear of ourselves. He anguishes over our self-absorption and our self-sufficiency. God's sorrow lies in our refusal to approach him when we have sinned and failed. I never met Brandon Manning, but he sure seemed to know me. This quote so absolutely accurately describes me right up to the moment when God said, enough. Enough to the perfectionism, enough to my controlling ways, enough to numb down emotions, to that intentional apathy, to my running from the Holy Spirit, to my running from any situation where I was not going to succeed, let alone excel. And I hear about people who have these incredible spiritual awakenings. I've met them from one of Danny's sermons. I've met them from 
the songs that Chandra and David and the worship team sing, healing in those songs. I've met them who heard a testimony and turned their lives around about physical healings and miraculous turnarounds in their lives and in their families, in their marriages. God's transformation, his revelation to me, came from a, a much different source. It came to me in a Costco rotisserie chicken. Driving home one night, my wife was down visiting her kids in Orange County. I'm driving home and I, what do I want to have for dinner? It's Monday night football. Um, what have I got? So I did the inventory. I've got fresh avocados. I've got tortillas. I've got salsa. All I need is Costco chicken for those chicken soft tacos to watch the game. Right into the Costco parking lot, miraculously. Car just drove itself. Got myself a basket because we all know those chickens are hot. You cannot just carry one up to the check stand, right? You gotta have a basket. Carry my basket. Men gave me knowing glances. Oh yeah, you've gotta have a basket, dude. Get to the check stand, put it on the conveyor belt, gets to the cashier, she looks at me, she looks at the chicken. Just that? I said, and I didn't even say a word. I just go, she goes, oh, they're great, aren't they? I said, yes, they are. The lady standing next to her, you know, the one that helps package your groceries back into the cart, she says, hey, you want a little cardboard box for that chicken? I said, you know I do. I said, I don't want it to leak. Take it out to the car. The guy checking my receipt, just one item. I go, just a chicken. I goes, oh, man, aren't they great? I said, yes, they are. Get to my truck. I put it in the floorboard. I didn't want it on my seat. No chance of tipping. On my floorboard. Cardboard box. Out the main drive. Getting ready to go on to Rosedale Highway and home. Three cars back. On the corner was a man with a sign. And in a voice as clearly as I'm talking to you, God said... I want you to give him the chicken. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's hungry. I want you to give him the chicken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hit the window button. Dude. You think I'm crazy, but God just told me to give you this chicken. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm so hungry. Thank you. God bless you. I said, God bless you. And I drove away. And that was the night that God started peeling the layers of my perfectionism and replacing them with his incredible grace. And you're sitting there thinking, that's kind of a stretch, Kip. Come on. It was a chicken. <laughs> but <laughs> here's what he did. Seeing a faith-based therapist at the time, because Lord knows I got issues. And I was telling him about the story of the chicken and how God had talked to me and how amazed I was that God even bothered to talk to me. And he looked at me really puzzled, and he said, why wouldn't God be involved in your life? Why wouldn't he talk to you? And there was a long pause while I studied the designs on the carpet. And he said, you don't feel like you've done enough for God, do you? You haven't earned his love, have you? And I told him that I had done, it was doing, all the things that I knew to do to please God, and to follow him. I was reading my Bible. I was trying to improve my quiet time. I was talking to him all through the day, serving at church, doing my best to love my wife, family. I was even trying to get along with people 
forgive them when they wouldn't say they were sorry for something they'd done to me. And then he said to me, you realize that's not how it works, right? I mean, you are a pastor. I doubt you ever told somebody they had to work harder to earn God's love. And I said, no. And there was a pause and then a deeper question. And he said, still, you don't think you're acceptable to God. And then there was a longer pause. And then he quietly asked me, who was it? And I was able to choke out my neighbor before a flood of tears and used Kleenex filled my lap. And then he replied, it looks like we have a lot of work to do. All I could do was not. As a kid, there was more to my being a good boy than just cooking and cleaning so that my parents wouldn't fight. An even stronger, more frightening reason to be my best, to not cause problems, to be the good boy, to do all that I could do so that my parents were happy. As I saw it in my 11-year-old mind, was so that they would never, ever ask me about what had happened next door. It was shame and it was guilt that fueled my perfectionism much more than my parents fighting. This was the beginning, though, of emotional dominoes starting to click over. Every time I went to a session with my therapist, they fell faster and they fell further. Our minds are incredible. They are incredibly complex, and they are incredibly mysterious, especially in the ways in which things that happen to us when we're young get cemented into our thinking and carry on as adults. How the thinking process of an 11-year-old boy held its grip on a man into his 60s. My therapy to confront what had happened and to allow Jesus, who was a part of my therapy, to do the actual healing wasn't easy. In fact, it was, just like Danny said, incredibly painful at times. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says about this process. He says, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing that we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go into pain and anguish, we are descending even deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. I've never met Dane Ortland either. But this quote, exactly describes my process. The deeper I went into confronting what happened, the more I felt the strength of Jesus' arms around me. My entering into the abundant life that he had promised had nothing to do with my ability. It had everything to do with my transparency, my vulnerability, and my brokenness. My resource to deal with all of that comes from the one person who truly loves me and the one who gladly, willingly supersedes all my human abilities in his perfect strength. So much so that we have this verse that Paul gave us to cling to, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of my life verses is Psalm 3.3. Short verse, meaningful. It says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David wrote this psalm when he was on the run from an enemy. Actually, it was his son, Absalom. 
And it speaks to his trust in God being his protector and the one who lifts up his head when he's in despair. And I've gone to that verse for those reasons a lot of times. But that verse gives me a different image too. It gives me an image of my heavenly father, my tender and kind heavenly father who gently cups my face in his hands so that my eyes can meet his. And I hear him say, keep your eyes on me. And I see the glisten in them. I want you to see the love in them that I have for you. I want you to see the confidence that I have in you as you trust me for everything. I want you to see your reflection in my eyes, my beloved child. I've discovered that my Lord Jesus, as I live in his presence, as I respond to the invitation that's recorded there in the 15th chapter of John, that beautiful passage is about the vine and the branches and abiding in Christ, that he wants to be my redeemer in all things. All things now redeem all things of the past, too. The redeemer of all my everys. Every hurtful word that was said, every painful slap, every time I tried to say no, but it happened anyway, every bit of shame and guilt, every thought that I am less than, every time I ran instead of trusting him, redeemed in his strength and to his glory. And as I go through each day now with Jesus, I'm finding that those numbed down emotions, that deliberate apathy that then morphed into perfectionism and controlling ways has given way to a growing curiosity and amazement as to what are you going to do next, Jesus? I see some things unfolding, and I'm amazed and blessed, but now, now you've got these things starting to open up, and, and I'm being asked for, to do this, and I never thought that was going to happen. But you're doing it because you promised that you would do it. Kavikas so powerfully shared two weeks ago his presentation, his interpretation in process. And that's me too. It's Philippians 1.6 that that process is going to continue by God to transform us into the likeness of Christ until the day of Christ Jesus. Some use the expression, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. I like to say it's not all football and sees candy because that's, you know, that's me. And it's not. You know it's not. I still have days when I struggle. I still find myself dropping back into old thought patterns and so old habits and, and ways of thinking about myself and thinking that I'm not measuring up. But we have a really faithful Holy Spirit who guides, who instructs, who corrects tenderly, and who takes us by the hand and pulls us in the direction where he wants us to go, faithfully, steadfastly, amazingly. In the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson interprets this very well-known passage in Matthew 11, the passage about Jesus wanting to exchange yokes with us. And he interprets it this way. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Then come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, 
and you'll learn to live light, freely and lightly. I've come to believe that being the dad that my Heavenly Father wants me to be, that shows my kids and my grandkids the love that he has for them through me has as much to do with me admitting my shortcomings and my faults as it has to do with talking about successes. Taking everything to him for direction and for healing and realizing that he really wants me to be the dad that I want to be. I've been asked what my biggest do-over I would like to have with my kids. If I had the chance, I'd say that I'd like to be able to go back when they were younger. And we were all together as a family. And we were facing some impossible, hopeless situation. And I would love to be able to say to them, I don't know what to do. And I'm scared. I don't know how to fix what's wrong. I'm clueless. I don't even know where to start. But I believe God does. And I believe he's going to help us. I believe with all my heart. And I would ask them to pray with me. It feels odd to say now. But when it comes to my kids and our relationship, it feels wonderful to be able to stumble and fall and screw things up, even fail miserably, and be able to shake it off and laugh at myself, not take myself so seriously, and know that my kids still love me. I say to them all the time, I love you, because they were words I rarely heard. And in God's empowerment, I'm also to say other short phrases, like, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I blew it. I am totally clueless. And in times of deeper conversations about times past that now are happening, I'm able to say, I hurt you. I caused you a lot of pain. And I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? and to know that they welcome those authentic, transparent words of brokenness. And now, Father's Day cards have beautiful sentences full of sentiment that tells me that the Lord Jesus is redeeming trust and respect and love and building the dad that I always wanted to be. Plus, I'm getting beautiful crayon and glitter and sticker drawings that I get to put on my refrigerator from my granddaughters. Some people think I'm a little bit off, and I am. But I'm a visual person, and I like to think about times when I talk to God. I like to see him sitting in a big red leather chair because my dad had one. And I remember times when I was seven, eight years old, climbing up into his lap in that big red leather chair, and those were good, good times. And I think about what would I give God if I had the chance to give him a Father's Day present like I gave my dad. And it wouldn't be a fancy box with fancy wrapping paper and a bow that I did my best on. It wouldn't be that barbecue mitt that I had sewn or, you know, the set of screwdrivers or a tool that I thought he wanted. The box would just be an old cardboard box, kind of torn at the edges. It would be marked up and labels torn off, maybe even stained. And in it would be the most heartfelt present that I could possibly give to him. And that would be an empty, greasy, plastic container that a Costco chicken came in. And I can hear him say, 
I love it. This is something I could really use. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in you, we have a perfect Father. Your compassion, your tenderness, your loving kindness, your forgiveness, your grace, your willingness to receive us in all our imperfections, all our frailties, all our failures. You are receiving, Father, in love that said, I created you to love you. And it has nothing to do with what you're performing or doing. I love you because I created you as my child. Come to me. Let me wrap my arms around you and show you the love you crave. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for strengthening us to live the kind of life authentically that you call us to have. In Jesus' name.
Will you stand with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you are stirring here in this room and those who are watching online. We bring to you our whole selves, our whole story. We bring to you all the emotions we're feeling today, whether they are uh, easy or incredibly difficult. We recognize that you meet all those needs and that we can run to you again and again and again. And so we lift you high above it all. We proclaim glory for you as you continue to transform us. We thank you, God, for today. We thank you for the rest of this afternoon and the week to come. We just bring you praise every single minute of it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week.